Thank you for downloading the Root Simple podcast. This week, Kelly and I interview Brad Barnes and Jen Collins of the blog The Do Abides. Their mantra is simple living doesn't have to be boring. Jen and Brad live in Columbus, Georgia. During our conversation, we talk about decluttering, taking care of elderly parents, living on a food stamp budget, and much more. Brad and Jen, welcome to the Root Simple podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. So we should start out. uh, Well, first of all, your blog is wonderful, The Do Abides. And us being in L.A., of course, that that We're the home of the dude. Home of the dude, (laughs) right? And we we have a kind of dude-esque lifestyle. Yeah. Is that... Tell me about that name, actually. Is that... Is is the lifestyle what what dictated that name? (laughs) You know, when we started the blog... Well, first, we had no intention of doing a blog, but we had bought um, some blighted property that we were hoping to turn into an urban orchard. And I was just describing it to a buddy um, who's a forester and telling her all the stuff that we plan to do, like the cover crops and planting native trees, you know, fruit trees that were drought tolerant and all that. And she would just smack her head and say, man, I wish you'd start a blog and, and you know, tell people this is the kind of stuff I've been trying to get across to the people I work with at the city and, and with landscapers. And so I, I mentioned it to Brad. And we thought, you know, that might be kind of fun. So we were kicking around, you know, just brainstorming ideas, trying to come up with something that was sort of related to fruit, mm-hmm. you know, and every, everything just sounded very cute and precious. And we're a little more subversive than that. <laughs> so it's the, it's the first rite of passage. I think you have to get the, you have to get the pun to, um, to participate in the blog. Exactly. <laughs> well, but it's nice as it sounds sort of nature you know, like yeah. something that Wordsworth or Thoreau would have written yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, but sure. If if you understand that the rug really did tie the room together, <laughs> you know, then then you're our people. <laughs> so I I gather from your comment that there was a misguided orchard project that was at the beginning of this. What was I, I saw a reference to that somewhere. What what exactly happened? Yeah. Well, there were there was suffice to say, I think that there was some controversy over property lines, and we didn't want to go into these blighted neighborhoods and then fight with existing landowners um, about the property line. It just wasn't worth the fight in the end. Uh, so we just kind of gave the property back and wrote off the surveying expenses as a donation to the cause. Uh, it was all for a, a local housing charity in town. They were selling properties they couldn't develop. Um, so that was, that's the story there. Where do you guys live? Yeah, actually, let's back up. Yeah. Where, where are you? <laughs> we are in Col- we're in Columbus, Georgia, about, what, an hour and a half south of Atlanta. Okay. Oh, okay. And what kind of town is that? It's a it's a former mill town. Um, it's it's actually one of the oldest um, plotted cities in the state of Georgia. Uh, it's the second largest in, in terms of population, and we're right on the uh, Chattahoochee River, uh, just across the river from Alabama. And are you both from there? No, actually, I'm. I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Um, and Jen, you've been you've been here most of your life, but you weren't born here. No, I was an army brat, and Fort Benning is right next to us. Um, the place where the female rangers just graduated. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and so um, my father is a retired colonel, and so I've been here since I was a kid, but before we lived in Alaska, Washington State, I was born in New York, so a little of everywhere. And speaking of your dad, Jen, I know you've written very movingly about taking care of of your elderly parents, and something about uh, this lifestyle, I think, has has helped you do that. Do you want to say something about your situation right now and, and how this lifestyle has helped you with uh, your life journey? Yeah, happy to. Um, 
Well, I'm fortunate because I, I won the parent lottery. My um, beautiful parents are now in their 80s um, and need a lot of help. Dad has advanced vascular dementia and mom has end-stage Alzheimer's. Okay. And when she fell and broke her hip last October, that was sort of a, a game changer. And I guess there, there comes a moment for anybody who's a caregiver of someone who falls under the Alzheimer's umbrella, you know, let alone two people, that you realize this is going to be your entire life, you know, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do is embrace it. And I don't know, I guess, protect, you know, your time and all of, I guess you have to get rid of all the extraneous demands on your time, even some of the things that you love, you know, so that's why I unfortunately had to leave a job that I loved with the river warden. I'd walk away from several boards and community service that I was involved with. But as we were sort of taking that step back and evaluating, you know, what has to stay and what has to go, you realize you got to eat, you know, and the best thing that I can do for myself as a caregiver, you know, as run down as, as you can get is nourish your body with food that's healthy for you and for the earth. And I guess all the, the, it reinforced, you know, our commitment to the whole homesteading um, and food preservation and the DIY ethos. And quite frankly, it's the reason that we still have such a high quality of life, even though we're living on one income now, because it's a lot cheaper to preserve your own food than it is to go and buy a package at the store mm -hmm. or to do all those DIY projects around the house instead of farming it out to a contractor. So even though we've had to make substantial changes, I don't think we've suffered any loss in quality. I don't think we have either. And, and and what she said is important about, I mean, we had already more than waded in the waters of simple living, I think, by the time uh, her parents, um, you know, the issues with her parents surfaced. So it, it, more than anything else, it just reinforced, um, you know, the path we had already started down. Mm -hmm. You realize what's important. Some people would say, well, it, you know, it takes a lot of time to do those things. So how have you managed time around your household? Do you make time to cook from scratch to preserve things? Is there a certain time of the week that you, you deal with that? I've um, gotten really good, at least this year, you know, of, of establishing a schedule. Like I, there are certain hours of the day that, you know, I'm at the, the memory care home with my parents and the rest of the time, you know, I look at it as a way to decompress. Like I enjoy cooking. I enjoy preserving food. So I, I don't look at the, those things as chores. I look at them as outlets. Um, and writing the blog has been incredibly helpful. You know, it's, it's not a burden at all. It's, it's again, something that I enjoy. And so I, I make a, a commitment to give myself, you know, an hour every morning to, to write and, you know, to flesh out blog posts or, um, just to journal. So, um, you know, and Brad really chips in too. I mean, it's not like I'm the only person, you know, putting away the food and doing all the work around here. If we, you know, we will put away about 75 or hundred pounds of tomatoes for the two of us. And he's in their sleeves rolled up with me and we can knock it out in about eight hours. So, you know, that's what we'll do on, on one of our weekend days together. It does make for a long day. It does. <laughs> Well, yeah, then, nope. then you have to write about it on top of it. I know. You know? That's why we started out writing every day, and we realized, yeah, that's that's not going to happen right now. That was not a very sustainable uh, level of productivity. Well, so we are... do twice a week so that we have time to actually do those homesteading projects and then write about them. But we, we stared at uh, unpainted picket fence uh, around our house for about 10 years uh, before we finally tackled painting it. And, and, and we were still going into that sort of, you know, grudgingly. Uh, what's kind of what's kind of cool is now we're looking forward to that because it's time where you've just got 
uh, you, you, you kind of you know, embrace the Zen aspects of, of painting a white fence or yeah. a penny fence white, I should say. Um, it's, it's therapeutic in a lot of ways. You, you don't have to think about a lot of stuff. You can just kind of clear your head. Maybe there's a little music playing in the background. And you're enjoying the sun. Um, so a lot of the, what people would call chores to us have, have sort of become therapy. Yeah, you both, by the way, are very good writers. We were really enjoying your blog. Yeah, it's a beautiful blog, really well put together and well written. So so, everybody should check that out. Yeah, There's a lot coming from you guys. Thank you. Good good (laughs) photographers, too. So speaking of making way for things that are truly important, I know you wanted to talk about some purging that you guys have done uh, recently. You want to say something about getting rid of possessions, something that's near and dear to us and to our listeners? <laughs> near and dear to us, but not done nearly Yeah, not enough. done, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically quite dear. <laughs> so, so that was one of our New Year's resolutions, I guess, was to, to, to get rid of the little piles of things. We don't have a, uh, it's not a tiny house, but it's not a large house. It's what, 1,400 square feet or I so. Guess, yeah. uh, it's more than we need, but um, with that becomes the, um, the little nooks and crannies that kind of fill up with stuff that you just don't get rid of. So we kind of made a concerted effort to, uh, to pur- like you said, purge uh, a lot of that this year. And it's just amazing that this little house, uh, how much we've pulled out of it, and it's still full. Yeah, but we-, we have, what's nice is it's full of the things that we love and appreciate and use on a regular basis. And there's no more little, you know, like pockets of chaos. You know, like I don't dread filing stuff in the cabinet anymore because I've gone through and organized it and shredded old stuff that, you know, we haven't needed for 10 years or, you know, there, there came a moment when I, for whatever reason, I felt like I could get rid of all the things that had emotional weight, you know, that I had carried with me for decades because, you know, maybe it was given to me by someone very special. And I felt that I was doing them a disservice by getting rid of, of whatever that thing was. And what I finally realized is, that you can, you can appreciate the gesture without holding on to the thing. And so, you know, stuff that I've had since childhood, I was able to get rid of. And not just willy-nilly. It's not like we were callously, you know, getting rid of everything because we don't care about it anymore. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't make a bonfire. We didn't make a bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> but what we did was, you know, we, we found better homes for the things that, that mattered to us but could be valued and appreciated better somewhere else. What uh, technique did did you, you did you start with Con Marie or was this kind of self motivated? Like, how, how did you find the the idea and the strength to to go forward with purging? Well, it started when we went on vacation. Of all things, we went to the Netherlands last summer for a couple of weeks, and you know when you're there, you're struck by you know the simplicity of design and how you know elegant and uncluttered everything is houses and all the stores spartan hotel rooms and yeah yeah and you know after a couple of days you realize what an impact that has on your own sense of calm and so that was already kind of percolating in my brain by the time we arrived in Amsterdam and went to the Rijksmuseum um and they had it wasn't really an exhibit but i guess they had uh commissioned an art historian and a philosopher to interpret lots of the art, the paintings, the sculptures, pieces of furniture all throughout the museum. Um, and the way they did that is they they wrote this text on huge three foot by three foot post-it notes and slapped it up on the walls everywhere, you know, next to the corresponding art. And that text was really casual and inviting and, and pulled you in and, and maybe asked you to reconsider your preconceived notions of art and to realize, you know, that a 500-year-old painting applies to the very real human dilemmas that we still face today. And so there was 
this one painting that had it not been for the text, I probably would have looked at it for 30 seconds and thought, oh, that's lovely, and walked on. But it was this Spartan, almost completely empty white sanctuary. And the text next to it, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it exactly, but it was something like, um, like, this artist did not paint a design aesthetic. He was painting a way of life that if you want to reach the things that matter in this world, you have to fight distraction and you have to eliminate the clutter in your life in whatever form it takes. And it was as if a switch flipped. Wow. And when I came home, that's when I felt like I, I, there was no process. It was just, I'm tackling, you know, whatever, instead of maybe tackling all the clothes at once, it was this closet is a, you know, a place that, that causes me anxiety. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. tackle it as a whole, or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the shed makes me crazy every time I go <laughs> in and trip on all of, you know, the drip irrigation pieces. So we're going to do that next. So there wasn't a real rhyme or reason other than just recognizing how I interacted with the things in our house and then tackling those places that were issues. And, and it becomes sort of addictive because you, you get a feeling when you do this, um, you, you just get an invigoration, um, peace is probably too mild a word for, for, for what it is. It's, it's uh, almost a high uh, from knowing mm-hmm. that um, this stuff is gone. <laughs> and that you don't need it. So did you come away from that museum with kind of a calling then? Sort of a, a, well, a vision, like yeah, for... I mean, what, what did you see as the... Road to Damascus moment yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what was the What was the vision that you saw that... Love. Yeah. It's all clean. <laughs> it's empty. But no, I, but I mean, like, was there, <laughs> were there some goals that you thought, like, I need to do these things or, you know, that, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like a, either a career goal or a life goal that you saw in your, in your living space oh, like at that the, point? Oh, like the, yeah, that you would clean the space right, to so make that you could then do something. things? I, you know, it, I wasn't going for any particular goal with the space. I was going for um, a way of where I, I wanted to make the house a sanctuary. And so that didn't necessarily mean that I had to have, you know, you know, the Swedish furniture and everything, you know, clean and streamlined and all that. It was, you know, I love my books and I want to be able to access my books without 30 of them falling on my head every time, you know, I reach for a cookbook. You know, I, I want to enjoy being in my home instead of being, you know, oppressed is probably too strong a word, but overwhelmed by the yeah. things that were in it. Or, or the oppression that you feel when you can't add a new book because there's nowhere to put it. So, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, and there's everywhere we travel, there's always something that we learn and want to bring home and, and carry on with us when we're here. And that was, I think that was the big thing that we brought home from the Netherlands is, you know, that, that we wanted just simplicity and, and we enjoyed, you know, like I said before, how, how clean and elegant it all felt, not having just every little nook and cranny jammed. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for people who are DIYers because you save mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a fine line between, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is going to be like, useful one day. Right. Can't like, no, I don't even know what it is anymore, but I could probably, <laughs> I could forge it somehow into the shape I need. <laughs> so, well, there's yeah. also all the supplies you, you need for all the different kinds of projects you do, you know, and those, those take up space. Yeah, the the tools have remained untouched. Um, the, the supplies, I think we keep a we keep a small staple, and and um, we just try to get what we need when we need it more than than stockpile. But what's hard, and and I should take a picture of our horrible pantry and send it to you because it's the one place that I just can't figure out because <laughs> there's no way to store a year's worth of food without having you know a pantry jam full of mason jars and the empty mason jars and yeah. you know and the pressure canner and there's just 
stuff that you have to have when you live this lifestyle. So we try to keep it as organized as we can, but it's still a deadly game of Jenga every time we go in there. <laughs> and I that's, dream that's of a, a monster seller. I can't even face. That, that, uh, that one persists. You know how most households have one person designated to do the books? She is designated to do the pantry. Yeah. Uh, anytime <laughs> I'm going in there to cook and trying to find something, it's moved, and it's just the nature of the beast. It, it, um, you know, food gets shuffled forward and backward and, and that sort of thing. So, so I, I stay out of there. I just tell her what I need. <laughs> It sounds all very familiar. Now, um, <laughs> you you mentioned the mementos and uh, in passing clothing. Were there any sort of how-to stuff that you targeted and got rid of? Because it's something I'm thinking about lately. Yeah. Or did you keep well, you all should that clear, stuff? Like, Eric's been thinking about, you know, do I really do this, you know, activity X, Y, and Z enough to like for instance, justify having I don't its make, equipment around? Right, exactly. Were there any DIY projects that you targeted? Or did you, you said you kind of kept all the tools, but was there other stuff that you kept? Yeah, I, I've got a little stack of reclaimed pallet wood that I think uh, I need to use quickly uh, or it's going to no longer be any good. Uh, but I haven't really figured out... Um, we're going to be turning one of our rooms into a bar and I oh, think it's yeah. going to be some furniture in that room, but it's every project here has about three other projects that have to happen before you can get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about three projects behind, um, where I need it. So, um, I want to hear I'm, more about the bar. Yeah. I want to hear more about the bar too. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't happen to read the idler, do you? No, no. no we should. Tell, tell, tell us about that. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. Well, know no, about the bar. Another, well, yeah. anyway, uh, uh, but the, in the Idler book, he 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 puts a pub in his house. Oh, that's right. He loves them that's so right. much, and he thinks yes. they're such convenient. We, we aspire to have the kegerator. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. In the name of simple living and, and not having to buy, you know, beer cans and and bottles and such. Well, so. I, I initially salvaged this pallet wood with the intent of actually, you know, hammering together a a, a piece of furniture, a bar, uh, you know, out of out of pallets. Um, but then we found like a beautiful dry sink for a bargain and I'm, I'm like, it's already done, sold. So we bought that. And, um, so now we're looking at maybe a television stand or something with the rest of that wood. But yeah, I mean, we're going to move, um, uh, our comfy leather couch in there, the, uh, the television, the bar. Um, well, and what's nice about all of that is one of our, our dreams for years has been to have a wood burning stove in the house, mm-hmm. but the way our house is, has small rooms and, and the way that the, the doors and the windows are placed, there's really only one spot where a wood stove could go. And it would catch everything on fire, you know, as the room is set up right now. Now that we've gone through this purge and and emptied out this room that's going to be the bar and all of that furniture will move, we now can put the wood stove in the house. So we're looking at, we'll get the chimney guy out hopefully next week and look at the feasibility of of actually making this happen, which would be huge, not only just from a sustainability standpoint, but if you live in a hundred year old house, then you understand that it's really, really cold here in the winter. (laughs) Despite the fact that we're in Georgia. Yes. (laughs) Now, if we lived around the block from you guys, I I still want to know more about the the rules about this bar, (laughs) because could I just call you and just say like, there's something on TV I want to see tonight, and you know there's beer, right? Can I come over? Is that just kind of yeah, how it's going to work? Or? To get rid of the television completely, but our uh, <laughs> um, I think our, our middle ground is is that I can put it in this bar where she she might not venture right. terribly often, where I can close the door and have my little writing desk in front of the wood stove. I'd be very happy. But I would love to have some friends over. I was yeah, I was wondering if it's for personal use or whether like the dude can come over and oh, yeah. hang out. 
Of course, yeah, the dude can buy. Encouraged. <laughs> we, we, we've got a we've got a great set of friends that have been uh, you know during the 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 personal trials and tribulations we've had over the past few years. They've they've hosted us for dinner many many times, and our our aim is to eventually pay them back with many uh, many an evening in this in this new bar. Oh, that sounds great. Are there artisanal cocktails in the works in the bar? <laughs> oh, oh, yes. We make our own bitters. Oh. Yeah. We, mm. we infuse our own gins and, of course, the uh, the Peapod wine. The peapod wine. <laughs> Which we should talk about. There's there's also absinthe, <laughs> too, right? I, I remember seeing something you write about uh, absinthe having it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We love absinthe. I, I do love absinthe. In fact, I, I've been playing with a little bit of absinthe, and we, we just um, assembled a, a, a carbonation station. Uh, that's sitting on the on the bar in its temporary location. We just assembled that about a month ago, I guess. Yeah. And the um, five pound CO two tank is supposed to last between six months and a year. And I suspect we're going to burn through it in about two months yeah. because we're drinking carbonated everything these days. <laughs> oh yeah, we do that too. Oh, actually, what are you carbonating? Yeah, um, it's mo- it's mostly been uh, teas and, and waters right now. But it's it's on- it's only been um, like I said three or four weeks. So I think we're going to start experimenting with some other stuff. We did some we did some um, ginger infused water that was really really good. Nice. We've done lavender infused water. We've done blueberry, blueberry and lavender. Blueberry and lavender, yeah. That um, didn't taste shampooy. You the lavender? No, no, no was- really. Just a touch of it, though. Well, the, oh, yeah. the the trick was to boil the water and infuse the herbs first, let it cool, and then carbonate it. Mm-hmm. And that seemed nice. to work well. I did that with some lemon balm as well mm-hmm. that I had dried from the garden, and yeah. that was quite nice. There, there's this moment of terror as you're shaking the bottle to to make the CO2 bond. Uh, where you're you're terrified of opening the bottle the first time, <laughs> <laughs> or taking the cap off uh, the carbonator, and uh, we're still trying to get at the science of why it doesn't explode and spray everywhere. So we may <laughs> we may track down a local professor to give us some science for a, for an upcoming uh, yeah. blog post. And be mm. warned when when you use things like ginger and um, other spices, sometimes it gets a little frothy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we've noticed that things um, flavor like you know, it's like kind of stuff takes on a slightly more acid quality mm-hmm. after carbonation too. So yeah, that's yeah you have to um, figure all that out by trial and error. Yeah, yeah. And we we've we've really cut sugar this year. That was another one of our New Year's goals, yeah. and I think that's made our palate uh, a little more accepting of those sorts of things. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll sometimes add a, a, a little bit of simple, simple syrup. syrup to something to, to take the bite off. Mm. Did you say tea too? Did I, did I hear that you well, carbonated well, tea? Well, they mean herbal, the herbal infusions. Oh, herbal yeah. infusions. Yeah. Okay, got it. Right, yeah. right. Uh, so sugar, what, yeah, we go. Kelly, oh, go ahead. Well, what did you, you had a question. I, I think there's listeners going, Peapod wine. Oh, Peapod wine. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. you're just going to go we off on a rant about <laughs> sugar, you know. <laughs> yeah, tell us, tell us about that. heads when they drink it too. <laughs> so, so that, that's a, kind of a nod back to um, um, the. It was called either the Good Life or Good Neighbors, depending on which side of the pond you were on. And uh, it's an old uh, British show that lasted, I think, four seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little sitcom uh, where a, a couple um, um, did this. This whole they wanted to become self sufficient. Um, and, and the guy turned 40 and, and quit his job and, and did on a much larger scale sort of what we're doing. So, uh, in fact, the blog, we, we will tag stuff sometimes good lifery if it doesn't have a, a good fit anywhere else. And that's a nod to that same show. Um, but one of their running gags was that they used the peapot husks to make a, uh, a white wine. And they would give it to guests and they would take a sip of it and, and their eyes would, would fall out. Um, <laughs> So we had a, a bush. Our neighbor had a, a bushel of of, of peas, uh, peas, and she shared uh, half of that bushel with us because she couldn't use them all. 
um, we gathered those husks and we said, hey, if you're just going to throw your husks out, give them to us. We'll make some wine and we'll share a little bit with you. Um, so we gave it a try. We spent about $200 on, uh, <laughs> on equipment. It was our <laughs> first time that we had tried any, um, any fermentation. Um, so it was, um, there was a, a, a huge startup cost for what we expected to be a horrible, horrible batch of wine, <laughs> but it came out like a, like a, uh, a, a German, like a, like a Gewurztraminer or something. Yeah. Like a dry really? White. Yeah. We used, we used uh, champagne yeast and, um, well, we basically, we walked into the home brewing store in Columbus and asked the guy, you know, cause we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we just thought this is a lark, you know, we want to make beer one day. It's the same equipment. Let's just go ahead and buy it and we'll try this. You know, it'll be funny. We'll write about it. And we, we asked the owner of the shop, and he just looked at us. I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. He, he pulls out this, like, three-inch binder, blows the dust off it, and says, let me see here. And he flips through, and he said, <laughs> nope, I got nothing. <laughs> we said, okay, well, we like dry white. What's the driest yeast you have? And <laughs> let's start with that. And so we just sort of muddled our way through it because nobody knows how to do this. Like, it's it's a thing. You can find a couple of, you know, of, of – references to it online nobody's instructions matched mm-hmm. so we just sort of you know we said well this makes sense scientifically or that you know let's go with that and, and piece together a recipe ourselves and it we had five pounds of pea pods and it made four and a half bottles of wine so we thought well half a bottle is not going to age like it's going to get skunked with all the oxygen so let's just go ahead and drink it and see how awful this stuff is and we took a sip and we just sort of looked at each other and said my God, I think we made wine. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, pea pods. It doesn't, it's just boggling yes. my mind. Like Out of, what? Out of vegetable Can, refuse. Does this, does this just mean make. that you could make wine out of cantaloupe rinds or or <laughs> yes. hay or your, your Eric's socks? I mean, is, is it just I'm going about... to stop over our head with the, with the pea pods. We, we do have our CSA farmers saving some husks for us this year, so we may actually be able to do a case or two. Um, but it, but I think we'll stick with what we know at this yeah. point. <laughs> but it was really a thing. So there is like a historical tradition of making yes, wine yes. with pea pods. English thing, and it's wonderful. Because they I can't mean, grow great. You add a little bit of citrus to it, mm-hmm. but otherwise, that's it. It's it's all the pea pods, it, and you rack it just like you would any other wine. And it, it aged a little better than it started. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't turn phenomenally better with aging, but it was it was. I mean, I, and my joke is that we as we'll take a bottle over to a friend's house as a, as a hostess gift or whatever, and we bought table wine. It's worse than the stuff we made. Mm. We'll see if it was beginner's luck because <laughs> we're going to do it again this summer. That's just fascinating. Have you made any other wines? No, that's been it so far. We've been waiting for the peapod round two. <laughs> I, I would like to to play with a little beer, but we haven't done any of that yet either. Well, um, Kelly, I. Um... Uh, oh, more. Well, there's so many things that there they do are so many things. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about there's so. Oh. <laughs> uh, what about um, the food stamp diet? Oh yeah. Uh, oh gosh. You want to start? What? What? Yeah. So tell us what that is and what was the impetus to to try that. Well, it was it was about two years ago, and it's become a, I guess a lot more popular in the last year. So this, a lot of people call it the Snap Challenge, where you try to live for a week on the Snap allotment. Uh, for for um, uh, for food, it's it's a supplement that's supposed to supplement your income and and help put better food on the table. But for a lot of people, it's uh, it's a replacement for um, you know it's it's their only source of income for for food because they're spending it all on rent or utilities or car payments or or college or what have you. Well, and that's a, we had just watched a documentary called A Place at the Table, and it addressed how you know so many of the working poor are on are getting SNAP benefits and how they're basically starving. And 
we were so overwhelmed by the end of it because, I mean, that's just something that's near and dear to our, to our heart. You know, my parents grew up incredibly poor in the wake of the Depression in South Georgia. And my mom, you know, they scrimped and saved to put my dad through college. And she always said that she would know that she was wealthy if she could walk into a grocery store and buy anything she wanted. That's all she wanted. And that's sort of been my benchmark for success in life. Like if we have, you know, all the food that we can eat, then then we have made it. And so when we saw that documentary, it tore us up and and we said, you know what? Let's see what it's really like. Because in Georgia the snap allotment is three dollars and change, you know, for per person. Per person. And so we did a we picked a week that was in between um, our spring our summer and fall CSA. And it just happened to be, we had no idea ahead of time, but it turned out to be the week that Congress was voting on whether or not to to cut the SNAP allotment by $40 billion. We didn't even know that at the time. We that didn't was, know that at that the time. We just, we just yeah. picked it because of, of the timing in between our own CSA so that we wouldn't be wasting food, you know, not eating it. And it was incredibly difficult to plan. Because I got to tell you, I was a little cocky when we started because I thought, oh, you know, we're homesteaders and we're simple living and I can I can live on, you know, the $47 or whatever it was for the week. And at first I was, and the other thing is I was trying to plan healthy meals because, you know, you hear over and over, you know, how people who are on food stamps are eating, you know, this absolute rubbish processed food. Mac and cheese and... Mac and, and cheese and... Soda pop. You know, canned yeah. spaghetti. And like, there's there's got to be a way, you know, to, to eat healthy on this amount of money. And you can't. Like, forget buying anything organic. Forget buying anything fresh. I mean, at best, I was, you know, hoping to buy a couple of bags of frozen vegetables. And we were, and the other rule I had is I was trying to make things that you could cook in less than an hour. You know, if you've worked a full day and you've got kids, you know, you don't want to come home and spend three hours in the kitchen making a meal from scratch. So I was trying to do healthy within the snap allotment and fairly quickly cooked. And we almost starved. Yeah. I mean, it was what were unbelievable we how difficult it was. Yeah. What was a typical meal like breakfast, we, lunch, we, dinner? We, we had, I don't know if this is a Southern dish, Hop and John, which is basically uh, black eyed peas and, and, and rice with, if you're lucky, a little pork in there. We didn't have any pork no, with no. ours. Mm. Um, so that was, we had that. Four at, nights. Yeah. A bunch of nights. Um, we did stuffed peppers with rice. Um, every morning for breakfast, we would have grits and one egg. Um Trying, trying to think of what else we do. I mean, not that we had some really cheap sp- canned spaghetti sauce and pasta. <laughs> we, um, she budget. Jenna, Jenna's the planner of the, of the two of us, and she had planned this meticulous budget, and it was fantastic. Thank God we didn't do the calorie counts until after we finished, because I think what's the allotment of ca- calories supposed to be I, for me like twenty one hundred a day, yeah. and I think our, our first meal or our first day was I got seven hundred calories. Um, it was it was it was tough. Um, so you went to bed hungry. Oh, oh, yeah. You were hungry mm-hmm. the whole day. Yeah, you were mm-hmm. hungry immediately after finishing your, your dinner. And, I mean, and we had snacks allotted, you know, like a handful of peanuts or a little piece of cheese or something or, you but, know, a but, banana. But there was an extra – Jen had planned all this with like an extra 3 or $4 left. Uh, we thought that we would just hold that money out for whatever need revealed itself during the week. And it turned out to be a Jello coconut yeah. cream pie. Yeah, and Jell-O, it was, pudding and a and, pie crust. And it was the best – <laughs> lousy food I've ever eaten. <laughs> we're so hungry. That was that care. was about the we did it from um, was it a Monday through Sunday? No, it was Saturday through Saturday through Saturday. Saturday through Saturday, and or Saturday through Friday, I guess. Yeah. And um, it was about our Thursday night 
uh, home stretch uh, meal, she she pulled out that surprise pie on me, and I'm like, oh my god, I love you so much. Yeah, no, because I'm I'm a tiny person, and I lost two and a half pounds. Brad lost six pounds mm-hmm. in a week, mm-hmm. and we, we we drank nothing but water. So part part of my issue was I was I was having headaches from lack of food and also from lack of caffeine. All right. Yeah, and I don't drink caffeine, but I had a ma- a headache that started the first night and got worse, and by the fifth day, I couldn't function. Like, I don't know how I got through work that day, and I'm a very upbeat, positive person. And about halfway through the day, I I had this compelling urge to scream, and I wanted to punch my fist through a wall so bad I couldn't stand it. Now, now all all this is is not to, to, to put ourselves up and say how, how wonderful we were for doing this because p- part of what we wrote about during the, the week of, of posting was, you know, this was easy for us because it's coming to an end on Saturday night or Friday night, which, whichever day, for, for people that are, you know, are, are not going back to their regular meals and their regular jobs, this is how they live. And I guess you adapt to it to some degree, but it sucks. Right. I mean, and, and it's, it's, made us a lot more committed to like, I want to do more, just start doing canning workshops and I want to do canning workshops like, with the extension service and reach out to people who really need to understand like if you can get that food in the summer, buy those blemished tomatoes and can it, you're going to save a lot more money in the long run and have you know much healthier food to show for it. Mm-hmm. And most people, um, I, I talk to folks who are receiving SNAP and they don't know that SNAP will pay for seeds and food plants. So, you know, one of the meals that we ate were carrots from our garden, and then we made pesto with the carrot greens. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was one of the cheapest meals, and it was also, you know, one of the most filling and yeah, the healthiest. Yeah, had a little more heft than some of the other. So, yeah, it makes us really want to do more education and work with the folks that are trying to eliminate the food deserts in this town. What else did you learn from the process as you thought um – about doing it again or um... <laughs> you know we we talked about it we made some concessions and set some ground rules we and we took a little a little flack everyone that does this i think uh here's the arguments from people that it's that it's not it's a supplement it's not a, a replacement for for mm-hmm. for food money our our point of view was that for a lot of people their circumstances are such that this is all they get so so we took that hard line we started with a couple of pantry staples figuring that people are going to have cooking oil or they may have some rice. I think we actually bought rice, but uh, butter, I think we, we, we didn't uh, put on the bill, but, but I wanted to buy a bunch of bulk beans from the, uh, from one of the organic um, food marts here. And Jen kind of held the line and said, no, um, most of the people that are on snap aren't going to be able to get to that place. So we talked about doing it again with a couple of different scenarios, playing it out and seeing if it's easier or harder um, and just testing a few other theories, but, but not yet. We haven't pulled the trigger yet. We're still recovering. I'll tell you the one thing, if you ask like what we learned from it, it really brought home the concept of mindful eating. You know, like I, there was a time that I would have balked at eating the same meal four nights in a row. And I was so grateful, you know, for, you know, those lousy black eyed peas, you know, and, and rice, even on the fourth night. And you really do take a moment to appreciate each bite and maybe drink a glass, you know, sip of water in between to try and fill up your stomach and appreciate the entire experience. And, and it made me a lot less judgmental. You know, I mean, if you're standing in line at the grocery store and somebody is buying Kool-Aid, you know, packets with their snap allotment, you know, after when you can't have anything else but water, you know, that 12-cent packet of Kool-Aid looks like magic. And I, I do not fault anybody for making the decisions that they make. I, I think you wrote that you would ship somebody for, for a glass of Kool-Aid by the end of the week. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> 
Uh, speaking of tight budgets, what about the hundred dollar holiday? Oh. Well, I guess I, I, I'll take I'll, I'll start by saying that. Um, so we we have I have family down. I have you know my brothers and sisters and mother and father at the time were uh, all in Pensacola. My father's passed, but everyone uh, on my side of the family is down in Pensacola, where I grew up, and uh, and Jen's family is is all here. So we had the deal where we'd have to to alternate Christmases and get gifts for both sets and and juggle around on the holidays. Everyone has that, so it's it's nothing new, but. In Pensacola, we kind of noticed. None, um, my mom had my mom has four kids, and none of us had any kids. So, and we're all I'm the youngest, and I'm 45. So, um, Christmas gifts sort of lost their luster, became sort of a rote thing. So, I talked them in. It's probably been eight years ago yeah. now uh, into doing sort of what we call Dirty Santa, where everyone brings four or five dollar gifts. They're all wrapped up. They're thrown in a big pile, and you just play a game where everyone opens a random gift, and people can steal from each other. And it turned into a game and a lot of fun and a way of really enjoying time with each other without having to spend a bunch of time uh, and, and mental energy on shopping for gifts and, and money on those gifts. And it just went off on like a – it was incredible. I mean, it just – it made Christmas a, a, with you know with my family a, a much more joyous time again, um, and so we were looking at ways to to incorporate that in the, on the Columbus side too. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to take it from there? Well, and it it really started. I don't remember if it was two or three years ago. I had gone to the store for something, and this was October, and all the Christmas stuff was already up, and the Christmas music was already playing. And I love Halloween and Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. especially Thanksgiving. And I was so resentful that, like, it's being taken away from me. You know, like, let me enjoy each of these special days, you know, without pummeling me, you know, with the 12 days of Christmas, you know, the first week of October. And so I came home all grouchy and, and said, no more. You know, we're not doing Christmas this year. <laughs> and and I thought, yeah, you know what? I'm not I'm not letting the, the trolls of the world, you know, the marketing world, you know, do the, that to me. The terrorists can't win. The terrorists can't win. <laughs> 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 So we're like, okay, how do, how do we do this? And and I got online, was looking up to see, you know see what others had written about the subject, and I found Bill McKibben's book, The Hundred Dollar Holiday, which is this beautiful tiny little book, and it talked about how he and his family, you know, his wife, his children, they, I mean, for everyone, they spend a hundred dollars in total, and how much joy it has brought back to them, and they no longer, you know, you feel the impending doom, you know, as the calendar gets later and later in the year, and they don't feel that anymore. It's a joy again, and, and they all get together and, you know, bake and, you know, give presents to their friends and their neighbors, and, and we said, let's do that, and so that first year, like, we didn't go out and buy a Christmas tree and all the trimming. You know, we got out a few little decorations that meant something to us, and maybe took an hour, and we put them around the house. And we made jam for everybody as Christmas gifts. And we did the Dirty Santa with Brad's family. And my family, you know, they, my folks were already, you know, close to 80. And none of us needed or wanted anything other than time together. So they, you know, got in in the spirit of things. And that was, it was fantastic, the, the immediate change. And I know last year, it was even better. Like we, we did almost no shopping except one day we had to go out and pick up some uh, gift bags and as we walked in to the store it you saw all these zombified faces pushing their carts <laughs> and i laughed i said this feels like an, another circle in dante's inferno and we were we just breezed right in grabbed our gift bags said suck us and <laughs> paid our bill and walked out the door and came home and listened to christmas carols and felt <laughs> so full of joy like this is what it's all about 
So we, and we're a little worse than Bill McKibben. We spend about $200 a year, including, mm. you know, all of our coworkers and colleagues and, and friends and whatnot. But it is, it's made a huge difference and, and has made us enjoy the season again. Now, Brad, with your family, there's a little bit of a, these things are a little bit like a, <clears throat> I want to say like a uh, peace negotiation or a, <laughs> maybe a hostage situation or something like that. But uh, was the whole family, Brad, on board with this or did, did everyone sort of agree to, to the um, arrangement? They were, I think the first year there might have been a skeptic or two, but I think uh, everyone, everyone came around and I think after the experience of the first time, I don't think there was anybody that 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 wasn't on board. Mm -mm. Yeah, because it's it's fun to just go out and buy a little. I mean, they're five dollar gifts, so you just get like a little treat. Usually, they're edible or they're garden related because everybody in Brad's family loves to garden, and you buy something that anybody would enjoy. And it's just, it's the fun of the experience itself. You know, we'll spend a couple of hours, you know, because there's probably 30, you know, 40 gifts in the pile. And, you know, everyone taunting and, you know, lording the gifts over one another. There's a complex set of rules in terms of how many times (laughs) you can steal a gift and and who gets the the last turn and all this stuff. Which puts a little strategy into it. And so it's, you know, the thing is we're all, I mean, like Brad said, he's the youngest. So we're, you know, in our mid-40s. And... We don't need or want anything. Yeah. So I don't want anybody to go out and agonize over buying presents. You know, like, let's just let's just have fun. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Is there a division of labor around your household? Who does who does what in the household? What's um, the I, gender divide? So there, there, <laughs> so there's no there's no clear divide, but there are de- definitely like project leads, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so if it's if it's handyman stuff, I'll usually take lead and, and, and Jen's helper and, and, mm-hmm. and it's the roles reverse uh, when it's when it's uh, food storage or canning and, yeah. and preserving. And that's and that's. Um, you know, a lot of it is just because it's, it's, it wasn't based on, on, um, you know, traditional gender roles, of course, but, uh, Jen, I, I guess had the first interest in, in food preservation. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'd watched my mom can, I mean, we grew, we had a quarter acre garden when I was growing up. I didn't realize we had an urban home, homestead growing up, but we did. And so I, I had seen that stuff, you know, all through my childhood. So I wasn't intimidated, you know, by the thought of it and the equipment and all that. So, you know, I, I did the first foray when we, you know, first did the jam as Christmas presents and stuff like that. So it's, it's, I take a lot of pleasure from cooking and mm-hmm. doing that sort of thing. So it's more, it's more the divide is by our interest mm-hmm. than anything else. And, and we, have, so we both love cooking. We both clean, we both wash clothes. So all the, all the traditional chores are pretty evenly divided. It's the one-off projects where someone will step up and, and say, Hey, I'm going to do this. Can you help out a little bit? Yeah. And we're, we're both pretty active in the garden. So that's fairly, fairly equal division of labor in the house. (laughs) Speaking of projects, you also did something really interesting you mentioned, which is green renovation, which is uh, buying and and renting out houses. You want to say something about that? Yeah. So uh, we live in a a little tiny uh, former mill village um, in in Columbus. And um, it's, um, it's a charming little, um, place it's like 250 homes all built around 1914 uh the mill is now is now gone but all the little houses uh are are here and uh, i first bought a house here because it was an affordable place to live and it had a lot of characters it's not far off the river the chattahoochee river here in columbus um and jen and i started dating shortly after i was in town Mm -hmm. and she kind of fell in love with the neighborhood too so while we're still dating she bought a house here so we had two houses in this little town 
Um, and both of them needed renovations. Almost all the houses in this neighborhood at that point needed renovations. It had become sort of a, they become derelict, I guess, a little bit. It, but I, I rented here for a couple of years and saw the neighborhood sort of gentrifying a little bit. I liked the direction that I saw. I saw progress, slow progress, but I thought, you know, I could get involved and do a little bit of this. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we bought, I guess your house actually came first while we were yeah, I was 26 and and had wanted to renovate a house and so fell in love with the neighborhood after dating Brad. So yeah, I bought my house first in 2000, and I had no experience whatsoever. But I thought, you know, what's the harm in trying? You know, if if I mess something up, I'll just call in a contractor. But I'm gonna you know pick up the tools and and try to do it myself first, and <laughs> and it worked out pretty well. And so we renovated that house, and then and, yeah, and then we bought this. Yeah, one. the one ac- the one across the street from the place I was renting, a little for sale by owner sign popped up, and I called about it, and the price was was pretty good. It needed a lot of work. In fact, it took six months of pretty steady renovation, even just to get it livable, to to move enough in to get up the rental place across the street. Um, so then we had those two houses, and it just kind of. Uh, we kept we kept acquiring these things. It's it's <laughs> well, like the next house, like we had no interest in being landlords, but there we, was a house. The house next door to my first little home had been owned by somebody who absolutely did not take care of the place. I won't even begin to describe how he had let this house fall into disrepair. Like the, the greatest, you know, thing against it was that he had let when there were sewage issues, instead of correcting them, he had just you know taped off the line and was letting the effluent fall under the house. I mean, it was... Oh. The, it the, was the home inspector wouldn't go into the house because yeah. he said it was a, a, a hazmat situation. So wow. I had... There there were... In this tiny four-room house, there were... It was a woman and her drug-dealing brother and five pit bulls. And I had been begging the owner for years, like, sell me that house, sell my dad that house, just sell anybody this house who will take care of it. We, we wanted to get it owner-occupied because it was, I mean, selfishly, it was bringing down the property value of, of the little house that we had lovingly renovated right next to it. And we care about the quality of the neighborhood. We, so. we didn't intend to own it. But he called us out of the blue and said, I'm moving to another state and I don't want to deal with it. So it, even though it was the worst time possible, I had just, I had left my um, former job to go back to grad school, but we said, we got to do it. Like, we do not want another slumlord coming in and just leaving it as is. So we bought it and completely took it down to stud and did all sorts of things. We've put, we started putting white roofs on the houses. We've insulated, mm-hmm. um, putting up. I mean, double insulated windows. I mean, it's, I mean, they're. They're they're modernized in all sense except for design features of the house, which we've yeah. kept very traditional. But yeah, that. insulated walls, insulated roofs, white roofs on the last two that we've done with great success. We're a little nervous about the white roof. Uh, we're in a good place geographically for it. It's not good for everybody, but uh, it, it's pretty good for for our exposure if here. If you're in primarily a hot zone, then yeah. it's great. And and we were just nervous about what that would look like, and it actually looks great. Yeah. Um, so we started doing them on on every house that we've renovated. Yeah, and reclaiming as much of the the interior wood, you know, especially those hundred year old rough hewn, you know, beams. We reuse everything we can. Um, we put in like dual flush toilets. We buy all the tile and stuff that we can from the secondhand, you know, reno- the Habitat for Humanity, you know, stores. It it, it sounds like we're uh, like we're extremely rich. We are not ex- extremely <laughs> rich. It's a very it's a very affordable since it's you know it, it, the neighborhood is is, is still um, a little run down. So it's a very affordable place to, um, to to buy houses, especially if you're willing to to put a lot of sweat equity into them like we are. Yeah, but yeah. the last house was about to be demolished and we just couldn't bear to see, you know, one of the houses go. So we asked the owner, you know, would, would you mind if we just took a look at it and, you know, bring in an inspector and, and 
you know, granted the roof was detached, which is a problem, um, <laughs> but we weren't daunted because we'd, you know, already done so much before. And as, so, aside from the detached roof, we've seen horse houses. Yeah. So, so that's the one where we call it, we lovingly call it the crack house. That's what we call our house. So yeah, we, and we have a lot of fun. Like we'll use it. We used our, the last house that we were renovating as an art gallery, you know, once it was functional. Yeah. So we got, we got sort of the, the, uh, the bones strong enough and, and electric and plumbing done. And we, as we were renovating the house, we would have artist friends come and, and do one night shows there in exchange for labor. Like they help us prime the walls and then they could have the, uh, have the space for their show. And then we did final coat and somebody yeah. else came and did a, a show. Yep. We, we so, had, we had four shows. Yeah. In one yeah. Year. And so we want to do the same thing with this house, you know, rent, renovate it, have some fun, bring some people to the neighborhood who may, who might not have come otherwise. You want to say something more about the social structure of your, of your community there? It, 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 what's the population? And then, you know, this art gallery idea is kind of interesting. Right? You kind of, <laughs> are you making, you know, you making these things happen? How, what's the, how does that work? I call it guerrilla art. Yeah. <laughs> sort of under the radar because the, 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 the houses probably haven't technically been under their final inspection yet, but they are safe or we wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm giving too much away. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting community. It, it um, it has a lot of, of retired mill workers who uh, were able to buy their houses and live in it. So there's a lot of old folks around. Uh, there's a lot of young folks that are kind of making the push to renovate uh, that, that work at, um, you know, one of the, there's, there are several big industries in Columbus and they work at one of these places. So they, they're making decent income and, uh, like the proximity and, um, and like the price. So, um, so you get some young people like that and then you still got sort of the, uh, the houses that fell into disrepair that have, uh, less savory tenants that, uh, that are still clinging on to some of these places. But what's nice is I, I consider it very much a front porch community. You know, people hang out on the porches. We all know each other. You know, we have keys to each other's houses and look after one another. You know, when when someone's out of town, we have a really strong neighborhood association. You know, we'll have like little dinners and gatherings. Covered dish things. Yeah. yeah, And it's it's nothing for us to be hanging out on, you know, on the porch and, you know, wave the neighbors and walk back and forth, you know, hanging out with a glass of wine. I mean, it's it's very relaxed and and if feels like a close-knit community and you don't get that in a lot of places and there are a lot of a biker there's a river walk very close to um very close to our neighborhood so there are a lot of bikers and joggers that come running through so it's great to have a, a cold beverage and a you know maybe a, a little nibble out on the on the porch and wave at the people and uh, just kind of give an old-time community feel yeah does your lifestyle stick out at all or is it is sort of something, you know, in terms of canning and things like that, or is that just uh, kind of the way people live there or people used to that? I don't know. I don't think she's, she's nodding yes. And I'm shaking my head. No, uh, (laughs) I, um, I think if you saw the house from the street, you wouldn't really know, except that there's garden plots here and there. And and we, we recently ripped out our, our, uh, five-year-old azalea plants and planted blueberries. We've tried to, to make the, everything that we plant out here edible or, or help feed us in some way. Um, but unless you're really looking or unless you start taking a walk around in the backyard and such, I don't think you'd really get it. Yeah. Unless you, you don't see the solar composter, you know, from the yeah. front yard or the solar dehydrator that's up on the deck. Mm-hmm. People will ask about like, what's the weird box up there? Uh, <laughs> we've, yeah, we've got a solar you know what's dehydrator funny? Yeah, we have a solar <laughs> on our, on our roof of our garage, which, which is, is in the front yard, which is in but... the front yard. And <laughs> Oh, people are always like, oh, you're the people with that weird thing on the <laughs> You guys are a little less under the radar than we are. Well, but I still, I think it's it's true that 
that there's not a lot of folks that are doing the the food preservation and that sort of thing. And so they, I mean, I think everybody's very good spirited about it and curious and and supportive. But well, what's what's funny is we had we had five kids move into there's a big two story house next to us, and we had five kids <laughs> do a little commune for a year seven. there. Seven? Oh, there were seven kids. My bad. So uh, we'd have the back door open when we'd be canning, and one of those those kids came over and and wanted to learn about what we were doing. So she kind of would sit in and and watch. And when the coming broke up uh, a year later, she had fallen in love with both that sort of thing again, which she had seen her mother and grandmother do that stuff when she was little. So it kind of stirred those memories, mm-hmm. I think. And she had kind of fallen in love with uh, with the bid with our little neighborhood at the same time. So she ended up becoming uh, um, one of our tenants, and she's living in the house that the, the first renovation project mm-hmm. we did here, Jen's old house now, and, and absolutely in love with the neighborhood. So that's what we're kind of hoping to do is get get people that really are vested in the neighborhood back in the neighborhood uh, like that. That's a you know, and then and we're also hopefully passing on a little little of our trade. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, well, is there anything else you want to talk about that we didn't touch on? There's so many things you've done on the blog, actually. We dabble in a lot of things, and I don't know that any of it's it, terribly new ground, but it's you know just finding what fits for us. And I don't know. I think that may cover it. We're just we're having a good time and trying to en- enjoy life as much as we can and, and keep the overhead low. Yeah. <laughs> so when you tell our listeners what your website is and how they, they people want to get in touch with you, is there Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff? Or, yeah, we've, uh, we've got the full gamut of, of social media. It's the doabides.com. Uh, and that's and D-E-W. Yeah, the D-E-W-A-B-I-D-E-S.com. Um, if you search Do Abides on Facebook, you'll find our Facebook group. Or if you just go to the website, we've got all the social sharing buttons there. We've got a, a Twitter account, and uh, we've just recently become pretty active with Instagram because um, as as lives have gotten a little busier here um, of, of, of late, it becomes easy to take a pretty picture and share a few words and maybe write a full blog post. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brad and Jen, for being on the podcast. Yeah, it was wonderful. Very inspiring. Thank you. We, our our we pleasure. You guys are you guys are heroes of ours. So yes. um, it's it's very flattering to be uh, to be here. Yep. Road trips are encouraged. So come and enjoy the bar. <laughs> oh yeah. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> I could take you up on it. You'd be like, where are they ever going to go? That was Brad Barnes and Jen Collins of the blog The Do Abides, which you can find at The Do Abides. Dot com. This is the point where I would normally suggest that you support the Root Simple podcast through your Amazon purchases. I'm taking a break from that suggestion, at least for now. As many of you know, a New York Times article criticized Amazon for poor labor practices. This is on top of many other examples of bad behavior by this company. I put up a blog post about our Amazon conundrum on Root Simple, and we're still pondering what we're going to do. Right now, Amazon provides a modest amount of money that pays the hosting fees for the blog and podcast, and a portion of what we pay our webmaster, Roman. I'm leaning towards keeping our Amazon affiliate links, but also seeking alternatives. Long before this blog existed, back in the 90s, I used to do a zine. I'd like to get back to making small, unique publications. And in addition to being a great writer, Kelly has a fine arts degree and does exquisite drawings, which I'd love to feature in future books. If she's willing, that is. In fact, um, I dream of running a press someday out of the garage. 
but given the changes in technology since the zine days, I'll probably need to make available electronic versions of whatever we publish. Let us know what you think about this Amazon conundrum or whatever else is on your mind by giving us a call at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Rootsimple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.